Hey, DJ Flook here from Stadium Scenes Main Event. Networking has become more important than ever, so why are you still carrying around paper business cards that end up lost or in the trash? Our friends at Link have created a solution to that problem by getting your contact info directly into that person's phone with a simple tap from your plastic business card, a bracelet, or even an Apple Watch band. When it's time to update your contact info, make the change in their easy-to-use networking app. For listeners of Stadium Scenes Made Event, you can save 15% by typing in promo code StadiumScene, that's all one word, at checkout. To learn more, visit linkapp.com. That's L I N Q A P P.com. There's a lot of people in the sports world nowadays athletes, media personalities, bloggers, podcasters, video producers, influencers all with amazing stories to share about how they got to where they are today and where they're going tomorrow. I'm DJ Fluke, and along with my partners, Kate Thompson. I'm sorry, I didn't go to a college that has football teams, so sometimes I space out. And Jillian Fisher. Hey! Oh my gosh, I alerted my pug and he's like, oh no, don't bark, please don't bark. We're here to share those stories in something we like to call StadiumScene.tv's main event. Hey, before we get started, this episode was also recorded as a video, which is available on YouTube via the description of this podcast episode. Otherwise, enjoy the show. So we're here with Steve Lavin of uh, Fox Sports, CBS Sports, uh, the Pac-12 Network, um, prior head coach at, at St. John's and uh, in UCLA. Also uh, an assistant at my, my alma mater, Purdue University. So it's, it's very exciting to, to talk to you. Steve, thank you for being on the show with us today. It's great to be with you. I'm going to jump in right away. And, you know, when you played college ball as a kid, I mean, I don't want to make you sound old or anything like that, but, but right. it, it wasn't like, you know, you had ESPN everywhere and you had 20 different sports channels and, a place to to upload uh, highlights to, to YouTube on from a phone. Like, how does a kid in high school from your you know from your era get noticed by the scouts? Like to to get yourself recruited. Like, what what was that process like for you? Well, I was fortunate that I attended a high school in Northern California. Uh, recently, the name changed um, to Archie Williams High School who was a longtime teacher at uh, Sir Francis Drake High School. So um, the school was Sir Francis Drake High School, the Pirates. And uh, they, you know, had a reputation in Northern California for being a a basketball powerhouse uh, just north of San Francisco. And it was an outstanding team. I was a very, you know, average basketball talent, uh, small college prospect. I ended up playing division two basketball at San Francisco state university and then Chapman university, uh, because my coach left San Francisco state after my sophomore year, uh, he was a mentor of mine. His name was Kevin Wilson. And so when he went to Chapman, I followed him because oh. I had an interest in coaching. So, uh, but going back to Drake high school, uh, we won back-to-back state championships, uh, had an excellent coach named Pete Hayward and, uh, he lived in the gym. And I had a great feel for offensive basketball, uh, but was underrated defensively too. three-quarter court, uh, man-to-man, full-court pressure. And uh, 
really could teach shooting in terms of shot mechanics. And so his teams through the decades shot the ball very well. Uh, but 11 of the 13 players in the team went on to play at some level of college. Uh, Steve Kennelvort played at Santa Clara. Dan Hunt uh, played at Portland. Chris Fulton played at Portland and transferred to Utah. A uh, player named Doug DeVore played at San Houston State, uh, among other schools. Jimmy Saya played at San Luis Obispo, and also uh, we ended up reconnecting at Chapman University and then later working together at UCLA. Uh, he was an assistant uh, with our staff. So uh, the two state championships, and we were 65-1 and one over the two years, and we won, I think, 56 consecutive games and broke Bill Walton's Helix High School record. Uh, at that point, you know, 33-0 and was the best record in California history. We went 34-0 and in our senior year. And again, I was a, you know, very uh, limited, uh, you know, athlete, uh, but fortunate to be on these great teams because, you know, to your question, uh, how do you get recognized? Uh, it's winning. And so, you know, we played, in, you know, packed uh, gymnasiums uh, throughout Northern California. And there really was a following, not only our fans in terms of Sir Francis Drake, but just people that were basketball fans really enjoyed watching our team play. It was an excellent passing team. And again, we shot the ball well, we played at pace. And um, so that's what led to some of the players in the team that weren't stars like myself, uh, having an opportunity to get recruited to smaller colleges. And I was recruited by Occidental, Pomona, Pitzer. Um, but I chose San Francisco State because it's where I was born and it was close to our family. And I figured I was going to finish there until my coach had the opportunity at Chapman University, which led to me uh, transferring and finishing up school there. And uh, then from there, went to Purdue and, and the rest kind of fell from there in terms of uh, the last 33 years. So, so, so you, uh, so, sorry, Kate, I want to ask yeah. this quick. On the topic of Purdue, you finish school and all of a sudden you're an assistant for Gene Cady, like in the Big Ten, in a pretty good era of Big Ten basketball. How did how did that work out? How did that come into play? Well, at a young age, you know, I realized that I had an interest in coaching and that was, you know, partly growing up in a basketball family. Uh, my father played basketball. And, um, you know, he chose not to coach. He went into uh, higher education and uh, education at all levels. He was an English literature, philosophy, a poetry teacher. Uh, he authored 19 books on writing and composition. Um, he was the director, co-founder of the Bay Area Writing Project uh, at Cal Berkeley, which was a program. It's still in existence now. There's 200 writing centers throughout the country, but it started at Cal Berkeley and uh, co-founded uh, with my father was a person named Jim Gray, another outstanding educator. But I think being, you know, in a family that had an appreciation for basketball, my three older brothers uh, all played as well. And so the love of the game, um, even though I was late to basketball, you know, I started with soccer and baseball and then came over to basketball, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, in my own time when I felt comfortable, um, you know, transitioning to basketball full time. So I think that uh, led to, you know, experiences of being at summer camps and working my high school coaches summer camps. 
and having success coaching, you know, younger players, fifth grade, sixth graders, seventh graders, winning championships at these camps. And then in college, I started writing letters uh, to Bobby Knight, Mike Krzyzewski, uh, Gene Cady, Jerry Tarkanian, um, a lot of other coaches that, you know, weren't as high profile like Jim Brandenburg, Hank Egan, some assistant coaches, uh, Mike Lagarza, who's an assistant at the University of San Diego, Mike Dunlap, who was an assistant uh, at Iowa to George Raveling, later USC, uh, Tim Gergovich, who was the assistant at UNLV for Jerry Tarkanian and kind of the orchestrator of their defense. He was really like the Buddy Ryan of the running Rebels when it came to his expertise on defense. So I started uh, just asking, you know, this was old school before email, uh, before the bombardment of the electronic media and being able to DM people and reach out uh, through different, you know, social platforms. So it was the old write a letter, put a stamp, get the address and put it in the mailbox. And surprisingly, the majority of the coaches wrote back and I was asking for, you know, the steps I should take if I someday wanted to be a head coach to be able to walk in their shoes. And so it was everything from camps and clinics I should attend to the books I should read and um, just their overall kind of advice on, you know, studying the coaches I respected and uh, seeing the different approaches to the game and then eventually, you know, building your own philosophy uh, in terms of what you're going to be comfortable with for the opportunity uh, or so when you get the opportunity to be a head coach at whatever level it is, uh, you know, you're further down the line in your thinking and approach and uh, the style uh, that you want to have as a coach. So I'd like to take this moment to ask you, what advice would you give to someone looking to get into coaching now? You know, really good question. I think in a similar way, the important thing is to, you know, seek out the coaches that you respect and, um, you know, visiting practices. Uh, that's ultimately what I did after writing letters to those coaches. You know, I went back and spent time at Indiana. I uh, couch surfed with some of the team managers as well as the players, uh, Cree Smith and Brian Sloan, who were playing for Bob Knight on the Hoosiers team at that point. Let me crash on their couch. Craig Hartman was a manager, later an assistant. Uh, he let me stay with him as well. And uh, Ron Felling, who was an assistant coach, uh, stayed at his place. And I was there about three weeks and was able to take notes, uh, you know, get into the locker room, pregame, halftime, postgame. And uh, it was a you know, transformative experience um, to be able to watch Coach Knight on a daily basis and practice for three weeks and uh, then to sit on the bench um, for their home games. I was able to, uh, you know, be in the timeouts. And uh, so I learned a great deal, also inspired me in terms of I knew after the trip to Indiana and Purdue, because I also visited Purdue for a couple of weeks and did the same thing there in terms of attending practices and uh, sitting behind the bench uh, at home games with the Boilermakers and, uh, you know, staying with some of the assistant coaches, Kevin Stallings, let me stay at his place. And there were some managers there, Gary Harsh, Alan Major, some other uh, friends that I've now known for, you know, 34 years uh, that took care of me back then in, in 1988. And, um, and then I applied, you know, to the schools uh, that, uh, you know, I really had an interest in attending and, and working, you know, under those coaches. And I was hired by coach Katie in 1988 as a graduate assistant. So he opened the door to me uh, 33 years ago. Uh, 
So I think going out and observing practices and, you know, taking notes and asking good questions, uh, you know, being a, an expert listener and uh, using the ears and the eyes uh, is really important. And then there's the practical aspect of that from uh, the standpoint that you develop, you know, relationships uh, with coaches, assistants, and head coaches that are in the industry who are already off and running in terms of working at the craft of teaching and coaching. And, um, and that's how we learn, you know, and then ultimately you have to, you know, uh, stay true to what you believe in, but that comes with time. You know, first you just want to study and learn, uh, find the Mr. Miyagi's, uh, find the mentors, the wise old owls, uh, or even some young Turks, you know, some young coaches that are uh, blazing a trail. And, uh, and I think that's what I would advise, uh, you know, young people that are interested in coaching. You want to learn first and then down the line, you, you know, crystallize your own thinking, your own philosophy, your own approaches, things that fit, um, things that you have conviction about in terms of the way you want your teams to play. So while you were at Purdue, you had a, uh, a young player there for, you know, for the last couple of years you were there, uh, who's gone on to have a pretty good head coaching career himself, yeah. Matt, Matt Painter. Um, I was a student there actually when the, the transition from the, the Katie era to the, the Painter era started. When you were coaching him as a, a freshman and a, a sophomore, did you see him as, as the coaching type? Like this guy is going to be a, a head coach and a, a very good head coach when, when he was uh, you know, that young? Yeah, he had, you know, a number of attributes that, uh, you know, led me to believe he would become an outstanding coach. Uh, number one, he was curious. You know, he asked a lot of questions. Um, you know, even though he was a player on the team, um, he was curious about, you know, the strategic uh, aspects of the game. And uh, he would come in our, you know, coaches lounge where we'd be breaking down game film and building our scouting reports in preparation for an upcoming game. And uh, he'd sit down, you know, with our staff and uh, participate, you know, and he was the only player that did that. Now there were a lot of players that came in and did film work in preparation for a game or in reviewing, you know, our last game players would come in on their own and uh, we'd sit down with them sometimes, you know, individually to, you know, just use film uh, video as, you know, an instructive tool uh, for, you know, helping them become a better player and everyone learns differently. Um, you know, some players, you can draw it up on the board. You know, some players, you can move them like a chess piece on the court. Um, you know, others are very visual and they have to see it first. And we all learn differently in every aspect of life. So uh, that's one of the keys to good teaching and coaching is, you know, understanding and getting a better feel for how each of your players learn. And because um, at the end of it, you want an informed basketball player. Uh, not only about their own game, but about their teammates' game, and then also in preparation for opponents when you're looking at tendencies, strengths, uh, vulnerabilities of an opponent and looking for a competitive edge uh, so that you can win more often than you lose. Uh, but Matt had that you know, uh, insatiable appetite, curiosity uh, about coaching, and he grew up you know, in the Hoosier State. Uh, 
<laughs> and uh, being from Muncie, he'd been around good coaches, Rick Majerus, you know, Dick Hunsaker, um, some outstanding coaches and teachers that were at Ball State. He also was friends with Pat Knight, Bobby Knight's son. So he grew up uh, around Bob Knight and uh, really grew up an Indiana Hoosiers fan. Interestingly, uh, <laughs> you know, he ends up becoming a Boilermaker as a player and has had this, you know, tremendous career and uh, on track uh, to be a Hall of Famer in my book. Yet uh, as a child, you know, he was rooting for the Hoosiers. And, uh, you know, what's that old phrase that, uh, you know, we plan and God laughs or God writes straight with crooked lines. You know, we have an idea of what we think we want to do, but often destiny or fate uh, play a hand in matters and, and we find ourselves elsewhere. Um, and oftentimes in a better place, a gift reveals unexpectedly or in a mysterious manner. And uh, that's clearly Matt Painter's story. So uh, he, he has a, a feel uh, for the game. And I also think he's improved uh, from year to year as a coach. And that's a good sign for Purdue basketball because I think his best years in coaching are in front of him. And he's already had remarkable numbers uh, when you look at the success he's had at Purdue. And he was the ideal succession mm -hmm. uh, plan to Coach Katie, uh, who set the bar pretty high in his 24-25 seasons with Purdue. Uh, but very few could fill those shoes so seamlessly and um, really has uh, checked all the boxes uh, in terms of what you look for in a head coach. And I love – uh, his feel for the game and uh, his rapport with the players. And, uh, you know, he can get fiery, but overall uh, he's got a relatively calm demeanor. He picks his spots, which I think for this generation is a good thing because uh, players in this age, you know, uh, they'll tune you out. They'll go tone deaf on you. Uh, if you're constantly nagging, whining, complaining, you know, screaming at them, uh, those days of coaching are done. There's a few Mohicans that still could pull that off. Uh, but once they retire, uh, I don't think we'll ever see that style of coaching again. So in 1991, you moved over to UCLA. Can you maybe tell us a couple stories of memorable moments from while you were there? Yeah, UCLA, boy, there are so many. It's 12 years total, uh, 1991. To 2003 and I was 26 years old when I arrived at UCLA and 38 when I was shown the door uh, 12 years later and um, you know Purdue kind of launched my career in terms of you know coach Katie opening the door to be able to work in the Big Ten uh, under a legendary coach and to have a foundation put in place by working under coach Katie for three years was was valuable. And uh, I'll be indebted uh, and grateful, you know, eternally grateful to, to Coach Katie and the opportunity he gave me at Purdue. Uh, but I met Coach Wooden while I was at Purdue. And Coach Wooden was a three-time All-American for the Boilermakers from 1928 to 1932. And he, when I was at Purdue, Coach Wooden would come back for, you know, various events like a basketball family reunion or to give a talk to a, a school on campus. And um, I was fortunate that 
you know, I was designated to pick him up at the airport, you know, bring him to campus, get him to his hotel, get him over to practice, get him to the event, down to a bookstore for signing of, uh, you know, a book on Coach Wood that may have been, you know, recently released or his pyramid of success, um, you know, that he would often autograph, personalize for fans. And so getting to know him uh, played a part in ending up at UCLA. So that Big Ten uh, kind of six degrees and the Boilermaker family uh, plays a part. Also, Mark Godfrey was an assistant at UCLA. I got to know him and that led to meeting Coach Herrick and, um, you know, ultimately coming to UCLA. But um, so learning from John Wooden during those 12 years was uh, one of the high points, um, one of the one of the high points of my time at, at UCLA. Also, uh, you know, the national championship in 1995. Uh, it was the pinnacle of Coach Herrick's career. It was the 11th national championship for UCLA, the only championship in men's basketball uh, at UCLA that was won by a coach other than John Wooden. And uh, it was an outstanding staff. Lorenzo Romar was on that staff. Mark Godfrey. I was fortunate to also uh, be on staff and uh, great leaders. Our senior class, Ed O'Bannon, National Player of the Year, uh, led us from start to finish. Tyus Edney, our point guard, um, had an outstanding career, but his senior year in particular, uh, he was playing at the highest level. And George Zedek from the Czech Republic was a seven-foot center that kind of anchored us offensively and defensively and we had uh, two outstanding freshmen that contributed, Toby Bailey and uh, J.R. Henderson. Uh, Chris Johnson was a freshman as well, but didn't play as often in that uh, 95 season. Cameron Dollar, Charles O'Bannon, Ed O'Bannon's younger brother. So it was a, a special year. Uh, we went 32-1, and one, and um, I think we lost one game at uh, Oregon to start Pac-10 Pac play. Uh and then there was a loss against Cal that we later picked up because of some NCAA issues that Cal had. Mm -hmm. uh, so technically, you know, we're 32 and one, uh, but we were 31 and two in terms of uh, the actual, you know, games that were played. Um, and then becoming a head coach at UCLA. Uh, that's a situation coming from a town of 25, you know, population of 2,500 and graduate from a school of 2000. Uh, I never dreamt that I'd become the head coach at UCLA. And uh, so th those that was pretty special. I was an assistant for five years, seven years as a head coach, 12 years total. And, uh, you know, there isn't a day that goes by um, that I don't look back fondly uh, on my time at UCLA. Before we talk about the, the head coaching real quick, I just want to talk, yeah. you mentioned Tyus Edney uh, in 95. During that NCAA tournament, he had an iconic play that, that, bailed you out of a, of a game you were losing to Mizzou and he went the full length of the court coast to coast in 4.8 seconds and nailed the winner. And I, I went back and I watched that video the other day and I could see you come running out on the court with the rest of the team celebrating. And was there a bit of shock on your face there? Do you, do you remember like, what? well, you yeah, well, there were a couple things I had, I had actually injured my knee. I had an ACL injury uh, playing some pickup basketball uh, that prior summer. And so initially I, you know, ran out and then realized, you know, um, 
I was still in the middle of rehabilitating that knee. And that's why I started hopping um, four or five or six hops because I could feel the knee was about to give out and actually kind of tweaked it some. Oh, man. And so to instinctively protect it, I just hopped on the stronger leg. <laughs> and um, and then, you know, just uh, we were so relieved to, you know, advance because uh, the story ends, the dream ends uh, if Tyus doesn't make that shot. And it changed the rest of our lives. Uh, we were going to be fired on Monday of that week uh, if we had lost that game. Oh, man. And, um, you know, later the athletic director and the president, you know, uh, shared that story. So uh, we would have all been out of work and you know, needing to get the resumes together. And, uh, and then that affects everything moving forward. You know, because yeah, really interesting. So I I always said if I had a child, the first child would be named Tyus, whether it was (laughs) whether it was a boy or a girl, because uh, he definitely is. uh, Oh man, you know, unreal. A a player that changed our lives. Again, we talk about the destiny and fate. (laughs) You know, playing a hand. So that led to him being on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and Bob Myers was a walk on. He's now the general manager of the Golden State Warriors um, and has provided great leadership for the Warriors, a couple NBA championships now under his belt. But uh, he was a walk-on, and he's the one that actually grabbed Tyus. And so he ended up being on the cover of Sports Illustrated as well. And uh, later, he was at the White House and on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno and uh, went to Disneyland, you know, as uh, the champions do. And uh, so kind of a remarkable story as well. Uh, that's for another podcast, but Bob Myers, kind of a force Gump uh, story <laughs> in terms of, uh, you know, what a success he's been and using the experience as a student athlete and maximizing that experience in terms of setting up for himself, you know, for life after uh, UCLA. And uh, yeah, in the, the post-game interview, Coach Herrick was asked, like, just, you know, like, why did you think he could get coast to coast that quickly? And he made some response of, well, Jerry West, when he was with the Lakers, did it in three. I, I had no doubt he could do it in 4.8. <laughs> yeah. And I think Jerry West, though, might have been a long jumper, you know, to beat someone. You know, he did push it up the floor, but I don't think he got a layup, but I, I could be wrong. Jerry West hit so many game-winning shots. Maybe he had one that was a drive and then another that was almost from half court. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, he was clutch. And the uh, interesting thing is we did a drill every day, not every day, but let's say two times a week. Uh, it was a full court drill. And um, that's one of the aspects also I think Coach Herrick alluded to was, uh, you know, being guarded in the full court and putting, you know, five seconds on the clock and you had to go coast to coast and score it. And Tyus was the only one that could do that on a regular basis. Uh, No one else in the team could get from one end of the floor to the other and score. And so we had seen it all year long in this full court drill that we put in that year. Interestingly, again, back to destiny or fate and how things have to line up when you win a championship. And you look at, you know, championship runs so often there's a buzzer shot along the way in the NCAA tournament that I think leads to a certain kind of feel of invincibility Mm -hmm. uh, that is a catalyst for cutting down the nets. Uh, Christian Leitner 
against Kentucky, uh, had one of those shots. Uh, we know about Tyus. Uh, there's been others. And, um, you know, Chris Jenkins for Villanova more recently against North Carolina hits that buzzer shot. Um, so usually in the run of six games uh, to cut down the nets, there's been a game where you come back, um, you know, or you get a break, a bounce of the ball, an official's call, uh, something that goes your way, an unexpected contributor off the bench, um, because you have to be good for six consecutive games. And you have to be fortunate not have an injury. Uh, we were fortunate. We didn't have one injury all season until Tyus's injury in the semifinals against Oklahoma State. But we had a player, Cameron Dollar, who stepped in and was ideally suited to lead us against Arkansas's full court press because uh, Cameron could slice through defenses uh, like a hot knife through butter and then make great judgments in terms of when to lob the ball, when to keep it himself. Uh, when to bring it back out and get us into our sets. And as a sophomore, Cameron showed exceptional poise and composure. And uh, if we don't have Cameron, I don't know if we beat Arkansas that night. And I think 75% of our shots were dunks or layups because Arkansas extended defensively to 40 minutes of hell. Uh, but we had a team that could pass, catch, shoot the ball, play at high speeds, finish at the rim. And that allowed us to win that game comfortably. Uh, the more challenging game, interestingly, wasn't against the defending national champion Arkansas Razorbacks. It was against Eddie Sutton's Oklahoma Sooners with Big Country Reeves and oh, company. Yeah. Uh, that was more of a grinding, methodical game. And Tyus got hurt. It was a very physical kind of hand-to-hand combat approach. And that's how Eddie Sutton's teams play. They shortened the game. They didn't let you get out and transition. One of the most memorable games in that NCAA tournament was – against UConn uh, in the Elite Eight, Oakland Coliseum. It was a shootout. They had Ray Allen, uh, Donnie Marshall, uh, Kevin Ollie, uh, Darren Sheffer. Uh, it was uh, one of the most impressive games. I remember, you know, watching Ray Allen, and it was clear that he was a future Hall of Fame player. Uh, and I think if they were in a different region, uh, we would have met, you know, in the Final Four or – the national championship, but it just happened that uh, we were both in the West region and, and met each other in the lead eight. But the two best teams that year in my book were Jim Calhoun's Huskies and uh, Jim Herrick's UCLA Bruins, the two gyms. Be sure to check back next week for part two, as we discuss Steve's head coaching career at UCLA and St. John's moving to the broadcast booth and his prostate cancer diagnosis. Be sure to check us out at stadiumscene.tv at Stadium Scene on Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and TikTok, at Stadium underscore Scene on Instagram. And we'll see you next week.